me to the book of Romans, chapter 11 and verse 33, and then turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1 and verse 8, and then Ephesians 3 and verse 10. Romans, chapter 11 and verse 33, we're speaking on the subject of the wisdom of God in redemption. The wisdom of God in redemption. This will be the 27th message in the series of sermons on the whole counsel of God. Now, having set forth the wisdom of God in creation and then the wisdom of God in providence, today we want to try to delve into the great mystery of the wisdom of God in the redemption or the salvation of sinners. Romans chapter 11 and verse 33. All the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him, through him, and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Again, the meaning of that text, of him, God is the source of all things. Through him, he is the sustainer of all things. And to him, that is, all things exist for his glory that take place in his creation. Now, let's go to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, and beginning in verse 8. We'll read verse 7 first. In whom we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Now notice this text sets forth that it is in the redemptive work of God in Christ, whereby his wisdom abounds. Now we've covered and seen his mighty wisdom in creation. We've seen his unexplainable wisdom in providence. But it is in the redemption of sinners in which the Bible emphasizes that God's wisdom abounds more than his creation and more than the government of his creation. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 9 and 10, verses 9 and 10, to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ to the intent, or for this reason, that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice that here is the wisdom of God in relation to the redemption of the church is described as a manifold wisdom. That is, it's wisdom in many areas. In the redemptive work of Christ, in the incarnation of Christ, taking upon himself the form of a man, in his defeating the work of the devil, in his bringing sinners out of their sin and into eternal life in Christ Jesus, it is in this that God's wisdom excels or it just overflows in relation to his creation and to his government of his creation. 
Now we're dealing with the subject today, the wisdom of God in the redemption of sinners. Thus far, we have seen that in the wisdom of God in creation, of how that the creation is a creation of order, as opposed to evolutionary chance or accident. We've seen that rather than the world just happening, God created the world and there is order in his creation. We've also seen the wisdom of God in providence, how that he governs over all of the things which occur in his creation, and that this is seen in opposition to fatalism or blind chance. That is, that God, if he is ruling over, as the lady has just sung about in the song, then there is no such thing as luck, chance or accident which takes place in his government. Everything works toward an all-wise end because the wise God is ruling over it. Now we come to the wisdom of God in redemption. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 8, we have the statement here that God has abounded toward us with all wisdom and prudence. That is, that this redemptive plan of Jesus Christ coming to save sinners is not just something that God thought up on the spur of the moment and he didn't think it through to where somehow it might not be completed or somehow that it might fail in his attempt. It is revealed here that God has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Now, what is wisdom? Wisdom is the eternal mind of God establishing a purpose. That is, he settles and describes that he has a purpose. God has an end goal, and that goal is the salvation of sinners. And in wisdom, he has developed a plan to secure that end thing. We read of the word here, prudence. Now, prudence is the ordering of all the means necessary to achieve that purpose. If I'm going to decide to build a doghouse, then I'm going to lay out the plan for the doghouse. But I'm also going to have to use prudence in that I'm going to have to know all the things that are going to be needed in order to finish that doghouse. Now, in the salvation of a sinner, it is said that the wisdom of God has abounded in that he has used all wisdom and prudence to bring that to pass which he has purposed. Now, we want to give an explanation of this by asking a question. And you listen carefully to this because I think that, in, that the reason that we're emphasizing this great subject today is that if we do not see the wisdom of God in redemption, we will not worship that God in the salvation of a sinner. That is, if we really don't see the depths of what God designed in the salvation of sinners, we will not give the proper worship and glory to God for what he accomplishes. In Osceola, Missouri, this past two weeks, We've had in the process the destruction 
of a small dam here which has been designed or was designed to hold back the flow of the Osage River. Now that dam is being removed by construction, uh, core, in order to allow it to free the river so that the new dam which is going in downstream will be able to flood back up and that the old dam won't be in the way of boats and so forth. Many people have gathered on the banks of the river watching the construction crew at work. And those men exhibit wisdom in that they know what they're doing. They gave a certain bid that they knew that they could take out that dam with so much effort and it would take so much money to do it. We now see that they were wise enough to accomplish that which they set out to do. Now, I want to ask you a question this morning, and I think that boys and girls and young people, you, can, you have the intelligence to answer this also. Would it be wise for that group of engineers to set out to remove that dam if they knew they could not get the job done? In other words, if they knew they could not remove that dam, would it be wise if they spent day after day after day attempting to do that which they knew they could not accomplish? And I doubt if there would be anyone here this morning who would stand and give that crew an A for wisdom. Let's suppose we're standing on the banks down here and we're watching them and we know that they can't remove that dam and yet they're out there just busy as bees trying to remove it, but they themselves know they can't do it. Now, we might give them an A for effort, but we'd have to flunk them when it comes to wisdom. Now, I want to use that illustration to ask you this question. Do you believe that an all-wise God would pursue after a plan which he knew he could not achieve? Do you believe that if God possesses all wisdom, he would attempt to do something which he himself knows that he could not accomplish? Now, he was giving an A for effort. But if he beforehand knowing he could not accomplish it, we'd have to give him an F in wisdom. Now, ladies and gentlemen, for the past 100 years here in America, we have had but one presentation of the so-called gospel presented to the American people. And that is this. That God is attempting to do his dead-level best to save every member of Adam's race, but he's just flunking ahead of the job. And as a result, many of those people whom God designed to save through the death of Christ are not being saved, therefore God's plan is failing. And as a result, the American people in our churches 
sit back and they are like the individual standing on the banks of the river watching the workers work and they like to see what's happening but they have to shake their head and say those poor men they can't get the job done. And we have people throughout our churches that have to sit back shaking their head saying well God's trying to save sinners but he just can't get the job done. And thereby we have to then attribute that there's something lacking in the wisdom of an all-wise God that's preventing him from fulfilling his plan. But I want to present to you this morning another presentation, which I believe is the only presentation that glorifies God's wisdom, and that is God is not failing and shall not fail in the salvation of sinners for whom he has planned the death of Christ. Let me ask you this proposition before we get into the depths of this. How many of you here today, I won't ask for a show of hands, but if I did, you'd raise your hand and saying, Now, I believe that God created every person. Would you agree with that? You believe that God created all people. Do you believe that God knows who he's going to create today? All right, here's an infant that's born or created today. God is active in that. Do you believe that God knows that in creating that person, there is a possibility or a good chance that that person is not going to benefit from the death of Christ and thereby is going to perish? Do you believe that God knows who's going to be saved and who isn't going to be saved? you believe that? All right. Now then let me ask you this question. Do you believe God is wise in going ahead and creating those people who he knows isn't going to be saved? Hmm? If you say no, then you have smacked the wisdom of God right in the face. But if you say he is wise, then those individuals, every person that is created, is created for a purpose to fulfill the purpose of God. Now, when we come to the matter of redemption, we want to see the triune Godhead at work and see how wise he is. That God is going to see the prevail of the soul of his son and he's going to be satisfied. Let's think about this is my father's world. Jesus who died shall be satisfied. He is the ruler yet. Now the wisdom of God the Father in planning the redemption of sinners. In Ephesians chapter 1, we see this wisdom revealed. God the Father now is at work. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us, past tense, with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. In other words, all that was necessary to secure the salvation of a sinner was purchased and planned by God the Father before the foundation of the world according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation 
of the world. Now here we see the wisdom of God in choosing a people who is going to be redeemed. And that everything that is necessary to guarantee that those people shall come out of the state of condemnation into a state of glory, God has planned that in His infinite wisdom prior to the foundation of the world. Now this is called the electing grace of God, that an individual is chosen in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world to this end result, that is, God designed something back here that shall take place here, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. That's what God planned. He planned that He would have a people who would be holy and who would be faultless before Him in love. Now we see the next thing that is necessary is for God, now that He has purposed to have a people, to arrange the events to secure that these people shall be without Him or before Him in holiness and in love. And that is found in verse 5. Here's the arranging now of God's plan. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. Now that God has a people, He is arranging the events now to bring those people to be holy before Him in love. And He is using all wisdom and prudence in doing this. To where that all those whom God has purposed shall not fail to be partakers of that which God designed or else you have the wisdom of God failing in His plan. Now we read in verse 7, or verse 6, To the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Now notice, of Him, God has planned a people. Through Him, He has arranged or predetermined the events to bring them unto salvation and to Him and they shall all glorify His Son of the name of His grace. And it is through this eternal wisdom of God the Father that has now planned or has laid out the redemption of His people. Now secondly, we see the wisdom of God the Son in purchasing this redemption. We see the triune Godhood at work. God the Father plans that He shall have a people which He shall give His Son. And His Son shall be glorified through those people. Now the Son's proposition is that He shall come to this earth and purchase the redemption for those. Now when He came, we see that He had two natures. He came as God, but He took upon Himself the nature of a man, to where He was the God-man. He was man in that He was capable of dying in the place of sinners. But He was God in the case that He could rise from the dead. So here we see wisdom in this. If God had come in His own eternal spirit, He could not have died. And if He had just chosen some 
human being, then that individual did not have power to give life. As Jesus said, I lay down my life and I take it again. So we see the wisdom of God becoming man, as no man would ever have thought of this. Those that may be here and you'd say, I see no wisdom at all in God's redemptive work. What man would ever have thought of God becoming a man? Meet hmm? all of your philosophies in the world. You'll never find that even thought about. But God was wrapped in swaddling clothes and became a man and identified with the sins of people in order that he might represent them and lead them through his death, burial, and resurrection back into the safety of God's heaven. We see the wisdom of God the Son in purchasing the redemption of God's people by satisfying both the law and the mercy of God. We read in Psalms chapter 85 and verse 10, a very interesting passage of Scripture, Psalm chapter 85 and verse 10. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. I want to explain that. When God created man and he permitted man to fall into sin, he placed him under a law. And that law was holy, just, and good. And he said, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Now this man sinned. Adam sinned, and in so doing represented the whole race of his people. Wherefore, as by one man sinned into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So the law of God must be upheld. Justice must play its role, or else God's law is out of date and is not wholly just and good. When someone breaks the law, justice cries out punishment. Uphold the law. And yet at the same time, another of God's attributes is that of mercy. And mercy cries out for pardon for the lawbreaker. So now how is God going to do this? He has a race of people that are under the judgment of his law. Well, number one, he could have exercised his right of justice and condemned the whole race as he did the race of the fallen angels. The angels fell. And God's justice fell upon them. No Savior was provided. No offer of mercy was given to the angels that fell. God's justice was glorified. They broke His law, and God was glorified in executing justice. But now then, here another race is created, and that race is man. And now man takes the same role as that of the fallen angels. Shall now God destroy this whole race which he has created only to have them fall into sin also? God could have done that and created another race. Could he not? Started all over again. But he did not choose to do so. Mercy cries out and says, O God, there is no mercy offered the angels. There is no opportunity for you to reveal your mercy. Shall you not now in your creation, rather than having it destroyed, shall you not give mercy a chance to be glorified? 
So while the justice of God cries out, condemn, condemn, the mercy of God cries out, pardon, pardon. How can God in His infinite wisdom bring these two things together without harming one or the other? How can He let off the criminal without harming His justice? And yet how can He execute mercy at the expense of His justice? And my friend, here we see it. His own son comes and is wrapped in swaddling clothes. And there that sinless, perfect Son of God, years later, is taken and by wicked hands is nailed on a cross. But he became sin for us who knew no sin. He had no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That satisfied the justice of God's law. That is, the law said, the soul that sins shall die. Justice must be upheld. But God the Son comes and suffers all the penalty of God's just and holy law, and thereby justice is satisfied. And now then righteousness and mercy is extended unto those to whom he is represented, to where that the substitutionary work, all of the sins of mankind for whom Christ represented, is imputed to Jesus Christ. And his righteousness is imputed to the believer. Thereby you have mercy and truth coming together righteousness and peace kissing each other. The justice of God, the mercy of God, you see on the cross of Jesus Christ. But now then, the question that has been raged for many, many years is, for whom did Jesus Christ bear the sins of? For whom did Jesus Christ die and carry all their sins into the grave? Now then, let's look in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. We've seen that God planned that he shall have a people which shall glorify his grace. In Hebrews, chapter 2, now we have the Son coming to earth. Now, who is he going to represent in his death and his sufferings? and his resurrection here on earth. Now listen carefully. Verse 16, Hebrews 2. For verily he took not on himself the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of, note, the people. The people. What people? The people whom the Father has singled out in sovereign mercy. The Son now comes to give himself as a substitutionary atonement in order to reconcile them unto God and to atone for everything which God's law has against them. Now notice very carefully. He did not represent the fallen angels. You see that? No one objects to that. The angels fell on their own and they suffered the justice of God. 
But I want you to note also, he did not take on himself the seed of Adam. He did not take upon himself each and every member of the descendants of Adam's race. He took upon himself to represent the seed of Abraham. Well, now, who is Abraham, Pastor Gables? What do you mean by the seed of Abraham? Who are these people that were promised to Abraham? Who is this seed? All right, let's go back to the book of Galatians and let Paul tell us. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. Jesus Christ is the promised seed of Abraham, the spiritual seed, not the physical seed. Now look in verse 29 of the same chapter, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, ye are Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. To whom did Jesus Christ come and represent? He come and represented the people that are called believers, those who have been made partakers of the promise that was given to Abraham. He did not represent the fallen angels. He did not represent each and every man, that is, Pharaoh and all of these individuals. But he represented the descendants of the spiritual seed of Abraham, which are, if you look through the Bible and study it carefully, you'll see are the same people that are described, the chosen or the elect of God. Now it is for these individuals that Jesus Christ died and paid an atoning penalty and purchased all the things necessary to secure their salvation. Now some will object and say, well, Pastor Gables, I don't believe this. I believe that Jesus died equally for each and every member of Adam's race. May I say that each person, each person benefits from the death of Jesus Christ, but not all to the same degree. Did Pharaoh benefit from the death of Jesus Christ? My friend, where is he? Where is Pharaoh? You know where Pharaoh's at. He went down under the wrath and judgment of God. Where's Moses? Did Moses benefit more from the death of Christ than Pharaoh? Well, certainly he did. We know that Moses is in the presence of God. Now then, some might say, well, I, I just don't understand that. All right, now Christ died for the people of God. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 8, says that he, let's, let's read that text. I want to read it to you. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. Verse 11. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Notice it is God's people, and he shall justify many because he shall bear their iniquity. Now it raises the question, is each and every member of Adam's race one of God's people? Christ died for the sheep. In John chapter 10, let's go there, and verse 11, Jesus was speaking to a congregation just like I'm speaking to now. 
in his earthly ministry. In John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Now we should ask ourselves the question, is every member of Adam's race one of the sheep? So I believe they are. All right, look in the same text. John chapter 10, the same sermon. Jesus said to these unbelieving Jews, But you believe not, because you are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now Jesus said, I lay down my life for the sheep, but he said, you're not my sheep. And I don't know how much clearer we could get it. He said, you believe not because I did not lay down my life on your behalf. And you go out on your own way. You don't want me. You don't want my righteousness. You don't want to repent. You don't want to acknowledge me as the Son of God. So where and what way have I wronged you? I lay down my life for the sheep. Now remember, that's the same teachings that Jesus said then, but you don't believe because you're not of my sheep, because my sheep hear my voice, and they come at my call, and they do follow them, and I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my Father's hand. Now then, Christ prays for all those for whom he dies. Now look, he intercedes. He's a high priest now at the right hand of the Father. Now what's he interceding for? What's he praying for? John chapter 17, he says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. In other words, Jesus Christ intercedes for a people, but he does not pray for each and every member of Adam's race. He says, I pray for them. Who? Look in the previous verse those that were given unto him by the Father. For Jesus Christ intercedes for those for whom he died, but he clearly says, I do not intercede for all of Adam's seed, for the seed of Abraham. Now Christ not only redeems, but he redeems and his redeemed obtain forgiveness of sins, all of their sins. But some men die in their sins, do they not? Some men die without having obtained forgiveness of sin. Now we want to go back to the question we posed at the front of our message. Is God frustrated or was he lacking in wisdom in accomplishing the salvation of his people as sinners? You say, well, Pastor, I believe that God designed the plan of salvation. I believe that Jesus purchased it. But now then I believe it's up to every person to do what he wants to with it. All right. Did God foresee that? Did he foresee what man would do with the offer of mercy? Yes, he did. And he saw, you will not come to me that you might have life. So what's he going to do then? There is none that seeketh after God. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. What's God going to do? Is he going to be frustrated? No, he's going to take the purchase blood of Jesus Christ and through the wisdom of God the Holy Spirit is going to apply everything necessary to produce a people who are going to honor his name. This is what in the Bible is called the calling of the Holy Spirit. I invite for our final text this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, For after that the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. 
But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks wisdom. Now then here's the question. The gospel message is preached. Some believe and some don't believe. Now to what do we attribute this to? Some embrace the gospel, some Jews, some Greeks. Some Jews don't, some Greeks don't. To whom do we give the glory to for their believing? All right, let's read on. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the foolishness of God. For you see your calling, brethren. Now notice what Paul, what he's pointing the sinner to. Here's a person who's believed in Christ. What made the difference? He says, look to your calling, brethren. For you see how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Now that's clear. But why does God choose some when he could have let the whole race be destroyed? But God has chosen the foolish things of the world. He chose an old reprobate like this individual sitting right here. And if you're here today and you've been made protector of Christ, you're the same type, beloved. God did not just peer down to the future and see something good in you and say, oh, that's, that's the person I want. No, my friend, God out of his own purposes of grace to exalt his son said, I'm going to take an old reprobate like this man here who wants nothing to do with me and I'm going to make him a saint. So what I'm going to do is going to glorify my son. He chose foolish things, base things. Well, why did he do this, Pastor? Yes, God chose him the things which are not to bring the things that are that no flesh glory in his presence. That's why he did it. But of whom are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now listen, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Now there it is. There it is. You say, well, that isn't fair. Why? Did God owe you anything? Did he owe the human race any more than to give his law? Hmm? Did he owe the human race mercy? Then he owes it to the angels. But no mercy given to the angels. He took upon him the seed of Abraham. Now the question then becomes, in the wisdom of God, how do you know you're one of the seed of Abraham? I'm glad you asked that question because it's important. How do you know that you're one of the seed of Abraham? How do you know you're one of whom Jesus Christ has borne your sin? Now listen, here's the wisdom of God in the gospel. Have you fled to Jesus Christ for mercy? Hmm? You say, I don't want mercy. And go your own way. God hadn't wronged you, has he? Hmm? But I was talking to some sinner here now and years ago. Maybe it was in an old-fashioned meeting somewhere. Maybe it was out in the field. And God the Holy Spirit smote your conscience and you fell down. And you said, I must have Jesus Christ. He's my all in all. My friend, you're one of Abraham's seed. You're one of Abraham's seed. Now I ask you this morning, if you're here and you've never believed in Jesus Christ, and you've never had your sins forgiven, I ask you, do you find a desire in your heart 
he obtained forgiveness God's way, then by the authority of God's word, I'm authorized as a minister of the gospel to proclaim unto you, whosoever will, let him come. Do you want to be saved? Every person who wants to be saved not only can be saved, but will be saved because they have a desire to come to Jesus Christ. The purpose of God in his marvelous plan of redemption does not stand as a barrier to any, but it opens the door unto some. Now, we know some are going to be saved, don't we? Do you want to be one of those? There's mercy after to you in the gospel. Lay hold upon the Son, even now, and claim your part in what he has done for the descendants of Abraham. All come and bow before him today. Bow before the one who's on the throne who has been resurrected and given authority over all flesh to give life unto those that were given him by the Father. Now you say, Pastor, I don't know whether he gives me life or not if I come. Why don't you come and find out? Huh? Why don't you come and find out? Because God cannot lie, and he promised eternal life. All that the Father giveth me shall come. That's true. Every one of them, not one more nor one less. But listen, everyone that comes shall in no wise be cast out. You come to Jesus Christ right now. Young person, young boy, young girl, you want to be saved? You want forgiveness of sin? You come to Jesus Christ, he shall in no wise cast you out. Now then, when you come, and you turn around after you come through the door, you look back on the other side and you'll see something there, another sign. It says chosen before the foundation of the world, and you have to give all the glory to God. Even your coming was the work of the Holy Spirit drawing you to the cross of Jesus Christ. That just takes all the glory away from you. And that may be why some of you don't like the gospel of free grace. You want the glory for your own salvation. You know that? You want to say, well, Lord, you did 90% of it, but I did 10% of it in believing. Where did you get the faith to believe? Is that left over from the fall? Well, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. God purchased everything necessary for the salvation of a sinner. And if you have believed this morning, it is that faith which united you to Jesus Christ. Now, I'll close with this thought then. As it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. You can go down tomorrow morning and watch the remaining parts of the dam being taken out. And as you stand there, you can admire the wisdom of those workers in being able to complete their design task. And ladies and gentlemen, if you are one of God's redeemed, you're going to stand before the throne of God one day and take that crown and cast it before his feet. And you're going to have to stand there in awesome wonder to see. Here is a host out of every kindred and tribe and people and tongue standing before the throne to hear that they will testify that the all-wise God who planned the salvation of sinners shall not be frustrated that every one of them shall come before the throne and shall glorify him. Not a one will be missing, but a pile. 
Not one sheep shall be left out of the fold. Every one shall come that has been given. Now then I say, you say I don't like that? You say I say that glorifies God because he could have been doing just like he did on back to the fallen angels. That's only. You say, Pastor, what was it in me then that made the difference? <laughs> God's grace, who makes it see the difference? God's marvelous grace. May that end us today. Let's stand together by the